I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hello and welcome to episode 20 of the world's first Paul Weller fan podcast. And we continue with our most ambitious week yet. Seven podcasts in seven days, a celebration of the Style Council. So shout to the top as each episode is with a different honorary councillor chatting about their time working with Paul and Mick. Now, 38 years after their debut single, Speak Like a Child, was released, I chat with a man who gets the accolade for the very first reference to an honorary councillor. A man who was on the inside before we even knew that the Style Council existed. And a man so loved by Paul that he was also part of the Paul Weller movement when he went solo in the 1990s. The fabulous Zeke Manjika is on our podcast today. So let's get into it. Hey, Zeke. No, it's a pleasure, mate. I'm really looking forward to this one. I reckon we are going to get some proper inside information on those very early days of the Style Council and how that linked in with the jam split. We're going to cover the Paul Weller movement and your involvement in that. You're going to, you're going to tell us it all, my friend. <laughs> now, to kick things off, tell me when and where you first discovered the music of Mr. Paul Weller. Oh, well, I mean, I was studying in Glasgow uh, during the whole punk uh, era. So everybody was aware of the jam, you know, the jam were quite a vital kind of part of our youth, you see. I knew about Paul then. When Orange just got signed to Polydor, we started bumping into each other at Polydor offices and they just got to know each other that way, really saying, hello, how are you, blah, blah, blah. Then he had my drumming on a song called I Can't Help Myself, which is an Orange Juice, which was the second Orange Juice single. And he really liked that. So... He asked me to play on the very first Style Council singles, which was a serious honour. And what was the journey from Zimbabwe? And I don't mean this geographically, by the way. From Zimbabwe to Glasgow, how did that all come about? There was a sort of, politically, it was very unstable there. And I think my parents thought I was going to get into trouble. So they decided. <laughs> so I finished my O-levels and a friend of theirs, a lady called Irene Mackay, suggested that I go to Glasgow and I went there and I loved it. I loved Glasgow. It was a, a great place to um, to go to after what was going on in Rhodesia at the time. People were great. People were really lovely. And uh, so I went there and did my, my higher levels, which is the equivalent of the A-levels. Yeah, and went to uh, uni to do social sciences and then decided to buy a drum kit. 
and, and, <laughs> and music is such a big part of life back home. So that, that must, must have always been in your blood. I'm guessing. Oh yeah, I mean, music was always around, and uh, my my dad used to actually sing in the choir with his brothers. Also, they they were choir conductors in in their schools because they were all teachers, quite uh, champion choir conductors. Parents really discouraged kids to get into the music scene. You gotta remember, there was all the background of the sixties. <laughs> what that all means? The whole thing was encouraging you really to go to um, university and and all that. Instruments, musical instruments were not allowed in the in the house, so. <laughs> We have to do that when we do youth clubs and stuff like that. You me- you mentioned discovering the drum kit. Was that was that always the instrument? Did you zone in on that and go, yes, that's the one. I- that's the thing I want to play. Oh yeah, I mean, I always felt that uh, I was always tapping away, you know, you know, tippy tapping everything, <laughs> and uh, I just knew that I had the thing in me about drums, uh, but I never played dr- any drums before. So I was go- actually going uh, for classes at the Glasgow College of Tech. And I used to walk past this shop called McCormick's in, in Glasgow, in the city centre. And there was always this beautiful white uh, premier drum kit, <laughs> fantasize. <laughs> how, how I could make my grand stretch, stretch to affording a drum kit. Yeah, one day, I think it was um, after a bit of a session at, at the student union, I think, walked in talked to the old man who owned it and uh, did a high purchase and that was it. Got the drum kit into the hallway of uh, our student flat and that was the beginning of it all. I didn't even know how to set it up. So. <laughs> <laughs> and was that when you met Edwin? Because Edwin Collins was in Glasgow as well, right? The way I met Edwin was quite strange, really, because one of my friends called Alan Paddy, we called him, uh, was the end secretary at uh, Glasgow Tech and he used to put bands on and stuff. He played me these really rough demos one day and said, check this out. But I couldn't really make out what they were trying to do. The demos were that bad. Admittedly, they were not that good at the time. <laughs> Just technically, he could really hear something in it. After that, I forgot about it. And then we had a basement where we, we rehearsed, me and my bands. The boys asked if they could come and rehearse one day. So I let them into the basement. So hello, hello. And I used to see them walking around or the post boys camping around in, in Glasgow, which was quite funny. Macho City and these camp guys coming walking by, which I thought was pretty cool. And then we got to know each other that way. I actually left Glasgow, was living in London at the time, when I got a phone call from Edwin saying, we really need you, you need to come back. So I had to go back to Glasgow and uh, say sorry to all my friends who had said bye and threw, threw a party for me. <laughs> Give back all the presents. <laughs> I've listened to quite a few interviews around that time, and Paul was on Radio 1, on Kid Jensen. Um, he was on Timmy Mallett in Piccadilly, and he'd often call out Rip It Up by Orange Juice as his favourite song at that time. That must have been amazing to get that endorsement from from the man, Paul Weller. Oh, yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, it he, he was a, a big honour. You know, it was a real honour. And because Paul is very, very particular about what he likes, and he says so. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's, so it's really nice when, uh, yeah, it was nice, yeah. He hung around for about eight, six, eight weeks in the, in the charts in the top ten, so it, it was pretty... Yeah, he did really well. So tail end of 1982, Paul splits the jam. The the announcement came in late October, final gig in Brighton, December 1982. It's actually, I didn't realise it was just a short gap between that and the Star Council. So the first Star Council singles released on the 11th of March 1983, Speak Like a Child. That's a tiny gap. So when was it you first started talking to Paul about whatever was to come next then? 
Well, I suspect towards the end of the jam and uh, Paul had been thinking about calling it quits. So he probably had a sort of rough idea what he wanted to do. I think the whole burden of being a spokesman for the youth was a bit too much for him, really, after all. I think people understand that now. He loves music so much and he's so versatile. He listens to all sorts of stuff. And the jam was a bit of a straight jacket towards the end. He couldn't really express himself in other ways because he's a damn good soul singer. You know what I mean? So I think he was quite ready. He was ready to go in. Because when we went in the studio, he knew exactly what he wanted to do. It was very quick. He wasn't precious about anything. The weight of just thinking, oh, I've got a new project now. Uh, that's gone. I think that was really good. You could tell, you could sense that there was a lot of relief in him. It was time to have some fun. So the first tracks that the Style Council are recording, and they're recording with you, so Paul, Mick, are Speak Like a Child, Money Go Round, A Solid Bond in Your Heart, which was written and recorded as a demo with the jam, but Paul didn't, for whatever reason, Paul didn't feel it was right at the time to bring that out. Um, and Party Chambers. Do you know at that point that you're part of the loose framework of this band, that the permanent members are Paul and Mick, and, and you're going to be an honorary councillor? Oh, yeah. I mean, he, he, he made sure that I understood that it was, uh, it was because I was a member of Orange Juice. So I found that really touching. Uh, I, I love that. Just the um, idea of being asked to mark the beginning of a new chapter for such an iconic artist. That was really special. And he's a lovely bloke, you know what I mean? He's just lovely to be around, you know what I mean? It's like, you know, there's no kind of weirdness to him, you know? He, you know, he's a very clean spirit. Everything is straightforward, you know? So, yeah, no, that was, that was brilliant. Okay, so take me through those studio sessions. So let's touch on Speak Like a Child, which is the first single. That's you, Paul, Mick, and Tracy Young on backing vocals, who, who signed to Paul's Respond record label. Was it just you in the studio at Solid Bond, just jamming and experimenting and, and playing, essentially? The thing is, he, he knew... You know, the lyrically and melodically and and stylistically, he knew what he wanted to do. He always does. There was a lot of air you could breathe, you know what I mean, creatively. So that was quite interesting. I mean, the one track that was really was genuinely a jam session was Money Go Rounds. They were checking the sound and everything. But I could see that there was a lot of activity in the control room. <laughs> so I just kept playing it, you know. They actually cut it all up together when I wasn't there and made it into Money Go Round, which was a lovely surprise. Yeah. So Solid Bones, Patty Chambers and Speak Like a Child had form already, you know, but we, we just sort of elaborated on that. But he, he sort of knew exactly what he wanted to do. So And Money Go Round, I think I'm, I'm going to have a look. I think I'm right in saying it was released as part one and part two. And it's like, it was like seven and a half minutes long, wasn't it? Yeah, because, yeah, that's that's right. Because he had a long version, I think, of it. <laughs> yeah, I know, he loved it. Yeah, it, it, just, it was just great fun to play. Yeah, it was really good. And the great thing is when that song comes out, there's a note on the back of the single, and we're going to have a plethora of, um, I'm just trying to think what the collective noun for a honorary councillor should be, but a, a, a plethora of the honorary councillors um, on the podcast. But you were the first, you were number one. And the single also has this, I think this is lovely, this kind of additional thought, it's says on the back where it says, please play this record at your utmost volume to entice the family, neighbours, et al, to join in a holy shout of spirit. I'm proud of that. <laughs> Very proud. <laughs> and who else were you playing with then? So who else was in the honorary councillor bucket at that time? Kamel Hines. Kamel Hines, yeah, you should talk to him actually because he, he did a lot of stuff with the Style Council. He toured with them as well quite a lot. And when we worked together with Paul for his new solo stuff, Kamel was playing bass as well. There's a few of us, I think. I mean, there's uh, Helen Turner, there's Jaco, 
he's got a lovely, um, really high voice for such a big guy. So he's got a nice uh, harmonizing voice with him and the flute and saxophone as well. He's a great musician, yeah. Jacko. Yeah, really good. You mentioned about Kamel playing live with the Style Council. Did you ever get to do, do anything like that or was the orange juice stuff prohibiting that? It wasn't really possible to do that. We're both signed to the same record label as well, remember? You know, there was a lot of stuff going on with orange juice and I started doing some solo work and I started working with people like that. I would have loved to. Look like great fun. <laughs> I remember on the singles that you're on, there's this little note where it says that you're on loan, essentially, from Orange Juice and Polydor. As you mentioned, the solo stuff, let's let's kick into that as well. And and also the work with uh, there, because you're on several albums with uh, Matt Johnson, Soul Mining being one of them. And honestly, the, the best drumming solo you've ever heard on Giant. Wow. That thing's like going to blow your socks off. Yeah, that was great fun to do that. Yeah. What was he like to work with them? Because hugely successful at the time as well, much like Paul. Were there sim- similarities, very different? We'd become quite good friends, actually. So we're hanging around together quite a lot. No, it was great fun to work with Matt because that, of course, that was also a new project. You know what I mean? Because he was, uh, he had just signed to Sony. No, it was great fun. It was really, really good fun. They're different, but they're quite similar in, in some ways. Edwin Collins, Matt Johnson, Paul Weller all in their own way, doing something quite iconic and, and new and different. So, yeah, I was very, very lucky to be at the right, in the right place at the right time, really. And what do you think they see in you? What's the uniqueness or the, or the uniqueness that you bring, to, that you bring to the party? Ooh, I don't know. Oh, my God. I don't know. I, I think they admired perhaps that I would give them all that I had and I would be honest but with my playing and I'll be open-minded about whatever they wanted to try out to have a go at it. But I don't know. <laughs> and then your very own solo album. So there's Call and Response in 1985 and then a few years later, Master Crime, 1989. Were those both on Polydor? Call and Response was on Polydor and Master Crime was on EMI. That was years later. I wasn't really meant to be doing a solo album with Polydor. But uh, I had all these songs. I was experimenting. I'd never done a solo album by myself. I was experimenting, learning different instruments and stuff like that. And uh, Malcolm uh, Dunbar, the A&R man at Polydor, Alan Sizer, who was head of uh, A&R, suggested one day when we were in the pub, I think, having a dream, <laughs> why don't you do a solo album? I said, <laughs> I can't do a solo album. <laughs> I'm not ready. <laughs> and they said, look, there's plenty of studio time. And I thought to myself, hang on a minute, this could be quite a good education for me. I know I'm not going to uh, uh, recoup any of the money, <laughs> but I can use all the money, all the studio time that I've got to learn and to learn and have the best musicians I can afford to come in and learn from them and just learn the, uh, the craft of recording. So that's what I did. I just booked myself into Rack Studios in St. John's Wood. Then I had to go on, on tour with it, with about a, an eight-piece band. <laughs> yeah, it was all kind of crazy, but it was absolutely brilliant because I learned a lot from it. I, I learned a lot of stuff that I'm applying to my work now. I learned in that period, you know, what not to do and what to do. Yeah, because I did a lot of stupid things as well. (laughs) So we're going to head back to Paul Weller now. The the end of the Style Council and the start of the solo years, and and it wasn't that big a gap really, but the Paul Weller movement, Paul working with some other honorary councillors that you mentioned, like Helen Turner, uh, Kamel Hines, Jacko Peake, 
you. Were you there right from the start? Or at which point did you get involved with the Paul Weller movement? Well, I joined pretty much at the beginning of it. Well, just after the beginning of it. What actually happened, I think I'm not 100% sure that I had done a, a track, you know, the Harvest for the World. The Isley Brothers song. I worked on it, rewrote some stuff on it, and uh, added some stuff on it. I asked Paul to come and uh, sing on it. And he turned up at the studio one night, and he did this unbelievable vocal. I, I, I swear to you, I'll, I'll play it to you one day. I was oh, looking please. for it. So oh, wow. yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just out of this world. The idea I, I had for that, Paul would sing one verse, I would sing the next verse and, and so on and so on. And then I, I did these kind of African chant things in the, you know, which I added to it just to make it quite different. But when Paul came and sang it, it was astonishing. You know, I, I got, I thought, how on earth am I going to do my verses? There's no way I can sing. I just couldn't, I couldn't match it up. So I couldn't match it up. I, I was just stunned by this vocal performance. I decided I would do all the other bits, you know, the backing vocals, the chants in the middle, the choruses, and then I'll just do one verse which I thought I could cope with. There was no real kind of definite plan. When we finished it, the Christians then released their song. So I packed it. I packed it. And thought we'll deal with that later. Unfortunately, when I was moving, it's a very long story. I was in America uh, touring with the Face Action and Groove Amada when my staff was moved to a holding place because we were moving house. And my tapes got destroyed there, so we couldn't find we couldn't find them. Forgot about it, but still mourning about it. But only a few months ago, my wife found a cassette of it and quietly sent it to this uh, geezer, this uh, old school geezer in Wales, who repairs things, <laughs> who, who repaired it and boosted it up and transferred it onto digital. Wow! And did a, a really damn good job. All without telling me, and I only found out after she'd done it. Oh, bless her! How lovely. This version of the song with you and Paul is never seen, and Edwin has never seen the light. Of it's that. never been. It's never been. So actually, I've just been thinking because I'm seen Paul for a long time. We just keep missing each other. I'm thinking, wow, you know, because I've been doing stuff with schools and stuff. I'm thinking that Marcus Rashford thing, you know, the yeah. feeding for kids. That would be a, that would be a great cause for something like that. So, but I need to talk to Paul about it, see what he thinks. Anyway, to go back to your... Well, no, I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to sit here waiting until you find the cassette. <laughs> when we did that track with Paul, I think he, he thought our voices worked really well together, which is why he asked me to go on the Paul Weller movement tour. That was the main thing he wanted me to go. White is playing drums. So I had to play percussion, which I had never played in a life circumstance, apart from tambourines and shakers and stuff like that. But I had to play congas, and I had to play the Moog, one of the old school synthesizers, you know, the thing oh, okay. that... Yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah, but I also get the feeling that when he got this particular band, he wanted people he knew and people he felt absolutely comfortable with, because that was like a transitional period. He was trying to do different music. He was he was free from a lot of obligations from record companies, except places like Japan, where he was a number one artist. Yeah, and he just wanted, I think he wanted that kind of coziness of people who he knew and who knew him and who understood how he worked so he yeah. could get this done without all the drama of uh, getting to know people. I think that was the, the logic behind it. And he was fantastic. We had an amazing, amazing time. And there's some great stuff being played. Like he's dipping into the Star Council, Cost of Loving, Ever-Changing Moods, Head Start for Happiness, Long Hot Summer, The Jam, we've got Carnation, songs like Precious and That's Entertainment, and then the new stuff. 
to new tracks like Into Tomorrow, Bitterness Rising, Aha Oh Yeah, which is where I first discovered Paul, and, and stuff that would feed into that, that first solo album. We did two or three American tours. Then we did the Japanese, Japanese tours as well. And then we did the European thing a few times. It was fantastic. It was really good, 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 good stuff. That's when he got signed to Gordisk, I think, released the first album. Are there any stories you can tell us of your time on tour with the Paul Weller movement? And, and obviously John Weller from that time too. Yeah, oh, I miss John. Yeah, it's so sad. I was really sad to hear John's passing because he's uh, such a lovely man. He was an absolute great fun to tour with. <laughs> yeah, it's, it sounds like it was messy, I have to say. It, it was a bit too much drinking, I think, yeah. Too many white Russians and black Russians. <laughs> but I think that was all to do with too much flying around, you know. Yeah, but, uh, but the gigs were fantastic. It was especially places like Japan, where he was huge in Japan. It's quite weird to, to think that record labels here were like cold at the time. He was number one artist in Japan, you know, it's like uh, very strange. Those gigs, were they proper big stadiums again then? Massive, massive place. Three, four, five thousand people all sold out. They were massive. The thing with Paul, even in America, the gigs were like two, three thousand venues, you know what I mean? Although he's not massive there, you know, and everywhere the gigs were sold out. And I have to say, I love watching back clips and videos of that time. The playing is so tight. You guys look so sharp. And wasn't Nicky Weller involved as like a stylist or something? Nah. <laughs> he's like, nah, I've got to get style, it. man. Shut up. <laughs> nah, we just, did, we just did it between ourselves. Yeah, no, no. Yeah, that was one of the fun things, especially in places like Japan. That's where we did all the shopping for a lot of the snazzy things. Perfect place for me because everything fitted because I'm small, yeah? In Japan, <laughs> they, you don't have to turn up the trousers. You just go in there, they just fit. Yeah. <laughs> now, before you go, it would be great to talk about phase action. You mentioned them a little earlier and, and also being on tour and working with Groove Armada. But um, phase action, for those that don't know, is brothers Simon and Robin Lee. And how it's built is them making disco fashionable again. And I love this stuff. I think it's now we're now getting into the fourth installment and it's it's got your influence all over it. Back to your Zimbabwean roots. Um, it's just brilliant. Yeah, Simon lo loves all that stuff, you know, and it's quite interesting because it's, um, Simon is predominantly a DJ, but Robin, his brother, is like a classically trained musician, and they get this uh, little African doing the African stuff in there. You know, it's that mix of the kind of electronic, European electronic dance with uh, a bit of Latin American music and African dance. So, yeah, it's, it's great fun. That's why I spend my time, a lot of my time doing in here, actually, just working on vocal arrangements for that. They're good lads. And is there more to come with those guys? We're doing a series of four EPs, and we've done three now. We're going to do the fourth one before we start working on a, an, a, an album and stuff. So I'm just working on that fourth one at the moment. Yeah, obviously, like everybody else, the life thing has gone quiet. We normally tour with a seven-piece band as well. Who knows what's going to happen with that? But yeah, no, no, it's really good. And I've just finished another project with a French DJ called uh, Folamo. Uh, DJ producer. So I've got two questions before you go, Zeke, and this has been lovely. I've enjoyed every second of this, so thank you so much. Um, your first question, you're allowed one Paul Weller song for the rest of your life. It can be Style Council, The Jam, or The Solo Years. Which one are you going to go for? Oh. Oh, my God. Yeah, you know what? The ever-changing moods is amazing. Like, like, I oh. don't know why that song. I just love it. I don't know why. Yeah. <laughs> you say that, and you got to play that live with him, right? 
Uh, I, I can't remember if we did that in the movement. Did we do it? Yeah, I'm pretty sure you did. And also he was embracing the jam again. He was playing some of that back catalogue too. We got to play at, at that entertainment and incarnation from the jam and all that. That's once we uh, go in there. But yeah, it was great fun. But it was really funny because we um, some of the gigs, like in Canada, they were in a time warp. You turn up and it would be just like people thought it was 1978. <laughs> <laughs> Pogoing and spitting on the stage. It was bizarre. It was like really going back in time. Yeah. Okay. And your final question. The whole point of this podcast is for me to get an interview with Paul Weller and get that chat that I never managed to secure in my radio career. What one thing should I ask him? Yeah. <laughs> uh, oh, if we, one question for Paul. When is he going to give me a call so we can get this song out? <laughs> <laughs> That's like the ultimate tease. When you find that cassette, you need to call me back, my friend. No, I will do. Don't you worry. I'll play to you. I promise. Yeah. <laughs> Zeke, this has been a joy. Thank you so much for joining me. Sam, you're done. It was really painless. It was lovely. Thank you so much. Right. <laughs> Bye-bye. What an absolute legend Zeke is. And I shall let you know as soon as I hear that Harvest for the World track. Next up, we hear from bass player Anthony Hart who became an honorary counsellor straight out of school, armed with a bass guitar back in 1983. And in 2021, he now has a Grammy, an impressive CV as stars played with and venues played at. Plus news of an exciting new venture that'll be right up your street. Please share this episode on social media, leave a review wherever you get your podcasts, give us a follow on Apple Podcasts, as it really does help us to find new listeners to the show, and it's the only way to get us up the charts. Just click that follow subscribe button right now, and it'll help us out. You can find us on Twitter, it's at WellerFanPod, or head to Instagram and Facebook. Get in touch, Paul Weller Fan Podcast. I'll see you next time. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.